We are very happy today to have a very special guest from Valley Forge, and we'd like to invite her to come and give greetings if she would. Florence, and you can tell us who you are if you would, and maybe a little bit of what you do. You're welcome. Good morning. I'm Florence. Uh, Florence Lee, I'm the National Coordinator for Asian Ministries and that including the latest of Burmese ministries, uh, 120,000 uh, Burmese refugees had resettled into United States, and out of that number, at least uh, 80,000 uh, American Baptists related due to the Adonite Justin mission uh, in Burma back in 1812. That is more than 200 years ago. But um, I started at American Baptist Home Mission Societies uh, back in 2004, and so it's been 18 years, and actually um, I came to this church 18 years ago um, when I was, a, well, I was in Berkeley. I was a student at the ABSW in 1982 to 85, and so I got the opportunity to visit the Bay Area churches, and this is uh, one of the churches I had stopped by. So I'm glad uh, uh, today that I have the opportunity to uh, return or come back uh, to uh, worship with all of you. And uh, in Asian ministry, I work with uh, all the first generation down to uh, second, third generation Asian and Asian Americans uh, in United States and Puerto Rico. And we have a multitude of services. And so uh, by God's grace, uh, we have 25, at least 25 different languages uh, within Asian ministries. Mm -hmm. And so today it's still very vital. It's spread all over uh, the country. And uh, before the Burmese ministries uh, came, there are some early on established existing Burmese churches, like the one in the Bay Area and San Jose, uh, are those are the early ones. Uh, but other Asian and uh, Asian American churches, uh, a lot of them are on the West Coast here, and uh, Midwest uh, are catching up or becoming um, a lot more. And today, the Burmese uh, uh, population, uh, there are four or five, at least six different ethnic groups that I work with. They are the Burmese speaking, we call them the, Bur the Burman language, uh, the Chin, and the Chin had two major groups, it's called the Hakka, the Falam, and then the Karen, the Kachin, uh, the Lishu, uh, the Mon, and if you pay attention to Myanmar, which is today the old Burma, the American Baptist had the mission tie, and today the, the country of uh, Burma has suffered quite tremendously and still is uh, ruled by the military that had crushed many um, civilians, especially the minority uh, Christians. Uh, those are the ethnic groups that I mentioned, and many of them have uh, been uh, resettled by the refugees, um, American Baptists, and uh, work with the Church World Service, as well as um, the countries, our United States um, State Department and population, refugee and migration. So I myself involve a lot of the advocacy work uh, 
Uh, we just met with senator, uh, different senators' uh, office. Um, I continue to speak uh, for the people uh, that had lost their religious freedom, their human rights, and, and, and many other things. And in terms of the Asian part of the ministries, uh, we do a lot of leadership development. And uh, I have an upcoming uh, Asian conference, which I will share that information with you, Pastor, uh, on June 24, which is a Friday. Uh, you can feel free to log on um, Zoom to join us. And so I bring you, at, um, before I go back down, to bring you the greeting from uh, Officer General Secretary, uh, Dr. Jeff Woods. Uh, he is now the uh, new general secretary, and I work with him very closely, uh, especially uh, regarding to the advocacy issue for the Burmese people. And then I also bring you the greeting from uh, American Baptist Home Mission Societies, my executive director, uh, Reverend Dr. Jeff Hagray, and then uh, Liz. Uh, Another uh, person that I'd like to mention is also uh, International Ministries uh, Executive Director, uh, Reverend Sharon Cole. So it's an honor to be here to worship with you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Florence. We are happy to have you here, and we pray God would guide you in all things. As you know, last Sunday we began a study of one of the earliest books of the New Testament, the book of Galatians. And we covered the first five verses, great verses of introduction with powerful message. Today's scripture is chapter one, picking up where we left off last Sunday with verse six. Galatians 1, 6. And there's in this passage a very strong warning. It helps us realize how important and how blessed the good news, the gospel, is. What is the gospel? Basically, it's Jesus, God's Son, died for the sins of the world. And what we need to do to be forgiven. We need to repent of our sins and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who did die for us. When we do that, we are forgiven and receive the gift of eternal life. It's a matter of grace. It's a gift. We thank God for it. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead victoriously. Galatians 1 then, beginning with verse 6. But of these who seemed to be somewhat, whatever they were, it makes no matter to me. God accepts no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed to me, as was the gospel of the circumcision was to Peter, for he who wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. Uh, 
Well, let's see, I actually got into chapter two, didn't I? Let's go back where we belong to chapter one. Verse six, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him who called you from the grace of Christ to another gospel, which is not another, but there be some who trouble you and who would pervert the gospel of Christ. But although we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, and these very strong words, rather amazing, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I say now again, if any man preaches any other gospel to you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brothers, that the gospel which was preached by me is not after man. For I neither received it from man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. No other gospel strongly warns against giving a false gospel, good news. We're not to tamper with it or we're not to change it. Now, there's a very similar, I would call it a twin passage, just back page or two in your Bibles, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's what it says beginning in verse 3. But I fear lest by any means, like the serpent fooled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity which is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, which we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which you have not received, or another gospel, which you have not accepted, you might bear with him, and so on. But notice it talks about another gospel that goes along there, doesn't it, with Galatians 1. But it also talks about another Jesus. Bear that in mind if you would. And so we find two twin passages concerning changing the good news of the Lord Jesus. First of all, we need to understand, and this especially pertains to the book of Galatians. We need to understand that we're not to add to the gospel. It's a gospel of the grace of God, Acts 20, 24. We're not to diminish that, and we're not to add to it. Now, last Sunday, I especially kind of encapsulated the main message of Galatians from chapter 5, and let's look at that to begin with here. In the book, throughout the book, we find it emphasized that we're not to add to the good news, the good news that I just mentioned earlier. Now, in chapter 5, the first three verses say this, Therefore, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Look, I, Paul, tell you, 
that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I witness again to every man who is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. That was the issue. They were adding to the good news. They were adding to the grace of God the requirement of circumcision and coming under the law of Moses. Now, where do we find this also dealt with? Well, let's go back to chapter 2, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, talking about the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, but instead by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even so, we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. See, that's the issue in the book of Galatians concerning the good news and adding to it, adding circumcision, adding obedience to the works of the law. Now let's go to chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Same type of thing. This only would I learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or was it by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now perfected by the flesh? In other words, we're saved by the Spirit, we're saved by grace, and now they're trying to add something to it, a requirement, they said, of circumcision and doing the works of the law. And so the gospel here, the good news to the Gentiles was, no, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, and no, it's not by completing the works of Moses in your life that brings forgiveness and salvation. Now let's go to chapter 5. Verse 6, in Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision. Those aren't the things that count. But faith, which works by love, that's what counts. And then it's kind of a similar thing in chapter 6, verse 15. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything or uncircumcision, but what does avail is a new creation. You see, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, know he died for our sins, trust in him, he forgives us, and he changes us. We become new people. We become true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we henceforth seek to live for him. You're probably all familiar with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And then a companion passage, Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. Both of those passages very clearly tell us that we're saved by grace. It's not a matter of our good works. It's a matter of trusting the Lord Jesus. But both of the passages then go on to explain that even though we're not saved by works, yet works have a place in the Christian life. Henceforth, we're to live for Christ, and that's what we ought to do, and we're encouraged to do that very thing. So we're not to use grace to cancel out the need to live a life of service 
to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, another thing that's interesting is that not only are we saved by faith alone, by the grace of God, but we are kept by grace, by faith alone. 1 Peter 1.5 informs us of that. Not only saved, but kept by God's grace. It's by faith that God keeps us. So we start by trusting Christ. We continue daily to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives us strength. And at my age, more and more, I realize how vital it is truly to depend on the Lord Jesus, not only for eternity, but for things in this life, day by day, to live for him. And so we're not to change the gospel by adding something to it, such as good works and our morality and things like that, or circumcision. But there's another thing that's very important. And this kind of springs from that other twin passage that I read from 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4, where it speaks of not only another gospel, but another Jesus. Really, there is no other Jesus than the Jesus that <laughs> truly is. But there are those who change their understanding of who Jesus is. Particularly before I became a Christian, <clears throat> I was about 14, I think, where I heard that some people believed that Jesus was God. That greatly offended me. I believed that he was a spiritualist medium. That was my faith for years in spiritualism. And so I didn't like to think that Jesus was thought to be God. I thought he was a great spiritualist medium. It wasn't until I was 19, through the grace of God, I changed. God changed me, and I came to put my faith, my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, I became a new creature in him. But you see, there are those who would, as I did, would subtract from the reality of Jesus, that he's God. They would say, he's not God. Perhaps they would say, Instead of a spiritualist medium, he was a prophet. Perhaps they would say, well, he's kind of a God, but not God Almighty. But we learn in the scripture that that would be taking away, subtracting from the truth. The truth is the scripture presents the Lord Jesus Christ as God Almighty. In fact, in his very name, Jesus, the J-E part stands for Jehovah. Jehovah is Savior, and so it is. He is Jehovah with us, God with us, as it says elsewhere. But what does the Bible show how there are those who don't believe that he is God? Let's go to the book of, of John, chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. Therefore the Jews did persecute Jesus, and they sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. You see, he'd just done a miracle. But Jesus answered them, My father works up to now, and I work. 
Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he had not only broken the Sabbath, which their laws interpreted what that would be, so they felt he'd done that, but here's the important point. He said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They knew what he was claiming. They knew the language, they knew the culture, they knew the scriptures. And for him to say that God was his father, to them was blasphemy. And they did not believe that he was God. So here they subtracted from the good news that indeed he is God with us, God Almighty. Another passage, just over a few chapters, chapter 8 of John, verses 58 and 9. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so he passed on. Jesus claimed to be God. They recognized the claim. As I said, they knew the culture, they knew the scriptures, they knew what he was saying. God had revealed himself to Moses in the Old Testament as, I am that I am. And the word Jehovah is connected to that. He is self-existent and he is eternal. And Jesus claimed to be God Almighty. They knew what he was claiming as earlier in chapter 5. So they picked up rocks. They wanted to stone him. Blasphemy they believed he had committed and he needed to die for what he had said. There's a couple places then there in John. Let's go over now a couple more chapters. Chapter 10 of John. Verse 30. I and my father are one. Then what happened? Then the Jews took up rocks again to stone him. <laughs> and so forth. So you see, they knew what he was claiming. He was claiming to be God. They did not believe that. They thought that was blasphemy and he deserved to die. We believe it and we're willing, I believe, to die for that if necessary. One other passage I would call your attention. 1 John chapter 5, beginning with verse 11. This is the witness that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Notice, son. He is the virgin-born son of God. He who has the son has life. And he who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe on the name of the son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Very strong teaching 
about the deity of Christ, the necessity of not subtracting from who he truly is, but acknowledge him as God Almighty, even with us. Now in the book of Philippians, it says in chapter two, verse seven, the old King James says he made himself of no reputation. But actually, when you go back to the original Greek language, eskinosin means where he vanityed or made himself futile, or perhaps well translated, he emptied himself. So you see, when Jesus, who is God, became a person, he emptied himself of some of his prerogatives. Well, what might that be? In part, at least, it's what is referred to in his great prayer in John chapter 17. Here he said in verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify you me with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see, when he emptied himself, he emptied himself of much of his glory. Yes, he was truly God, but he had emptied himself as he became a man for a short ministry of a few years in this world. Just a blip in the eternal ages. He emptied himself, he divested himself of some of the glory. And here in John 17, 5, he prays to God that that glory might be restored to him again. And of course it was. He came alive from the dead. He was exalted. He went to heaven. He's at the right hand of God. He has that which he had temporarily set aside, now resumed. Are there other places in the New Testament where it talks about this? Well, it says in Colossians chapter 2, Verse 9, that in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead or the deity bodily. And so here in his resurrected glorified form, he has resumed the fullness of the deity. Yes, he is God himself and he has resumed that glory that he had temporarily set aside. <clears throat> well, does the Bible teach this elsewhere? Well, there are a couple other places or so I'd show you. You remember there was a doubter among the 12 named Thomas. He didn't believe Jesus was alive again. He said, in fact, unless I receive absolute proof, I'm not going to believe that. I need to put my finger in the nail prints and put my hand in the side where the spear went in, or I'm not going to believe. The other disciples told him they'd seen him. They'd touched him. He was alive again. Jesus knew what Thomas had said, how he was doubting, he was not believing the truth. Over a week later, after that first Easter evening appearance to the other apostles, Thomas was with them and Jesus appeared again to them all. He spoke to Thomas right away. He told Thomas about reaching out and touching the nail prints, about pushing his hand into his side. And he encouraged Thomas, don't be faithless, but believing. Now, we've talked about that before, haven't we? What was Thomas's response? You know what it was, don't you? 
my Lord and my God. He called him Lord, the one he should obey. He called him God, the one who made him, the one whom he should worship. My Lord and my God. And so his subsequent life proved that he now believed this. As I mentioned before, tradition tells us he ended up in India, and there are many churches there now that claim Thomas as their founder. And there he was martyred for the Lord Jesus. Now, he wouldn't have done that unless he knew that Jesus was alive again. And then in John 1, the first three verses, it tells us that the word who is Jesus was God. And it tells us in verse 3 that he made everything. And in verses 14 and 17 of John 1, we see it's talking about Jesus. The word is Jesus. So the word, Jesus, is God himself. One other place. To me, this is a very important passage. And it took years before I really came to understand how vital this is. Jesus appeared in resurrected, glorified form to the Apostle John. Perhaps he was the only apostle yet alive, exiled to the Isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And in Revelation chapter 1, we find the one who appeared to John said this, I am Alpha and Omega. That's like A and Z the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book, and so forth. So he said he was the first and the last. He said he was Alpha and Omega. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, one of the places, chapter 44, verse 6, Jehovah God, God Almighty, is speaking, and he says, I am the first and I'm the last. So that clearly proves that Jesus is God himself. Now, there are those who don't want to believe that, and they teach differently, so they say that this wasn't Jesus who appeared to John in Revelation 1. But as you carefully look at it, say, verses 17 and 18 and other parts of it, you see that, yes, it has to be Jesus. And remember, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, the gospel is good news. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead bodily. He lives in this eternal body. He has it. A body like that is promised to every believer someday. We'll get bodies like his, the scripture teaches us. A glorified and eternal body. And there's another thing that's very important as we come to communion today. I've shared this with you before, but this is important. I'd like to share it a little bit at this time. Did you know that in the Old Testament, it is prophesied that another covenant, another testament will come to God's people? Book of Jeremiah, 3131, that's easy to remember. Chapter 31, beginning with verse 31. Look, the days come, says the Jehovah, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers and the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. See, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant, the Old Testament, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. A very clear prophecy in the Old Testament that there's going to be another testament that will come along, a new testament, a new covenant, a new agreement between God and man. And I don't think I've mentioned this before, but in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, where it talks about the dry bones coming alive again, speaking of the return to Israel of the exiles, in that chapter it also talks about the new covenant that is going to come. And you remember at the Last Supper, which we're about ready to observe in our communion, Remember, Jesus said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. My blood of the New Testament. There's the new covenant. He was inaugurating it, as it were, at the Last Supper. Just recently, something was rumbling around in my head, and I think the Lord guided me to this. In the book of Hebrews, it actually talks about that. And it actually refers back to the passage I just read at length from Jeremiah. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, meaning talking about Jesus. For how much better is he the mediator of a better covenant or a better Testament, which was established upon better promises. So he's referring back to Jeremiah 31. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31 here with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, as I said, the, the Old Testament thing, because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind. See, he's still talking about Jeremiah, what he said. And write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they should be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. And I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. 
You see how he's right talking about that passage. And he goes on to say this, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first one old. Now that which decays and becomes old is ready to vanish away. Well, that's really strong, isn't it? So we're under the New Testament, the new covenant, and it's better than the old. And we're not, therefore, required to be circumcised. We're not, therefore, required to keep the works of the law. In fact, even good works, other than works of the law, they don't save us. It's a matter of faith and righteousness. And we sang about those things also, did we not? So now we would like to remember what Jesus did for us, how he brought in the new covenant, which is better, and through which we have forgiveness and eternal life.